Joining me on the pavilion today is Dev Kovinji, a match referee uh, with Cricket South Africa. He has been a match referee all over the world in various places, the West Indies, Zimbabwe, Uganda, a lot of places. I cannot sufficiently name them or remember all of them. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Chris. It's always good to talk to you and uh, welcome to all those who will be joining us. Fantastic. Uh, Dave, can, we, can you please tell us how you got into, got into cricket, how you came about the sport? Well, if I look back, I would uh, have to credit my parents and uh, the family for my interest in sport. Uh, cricket wasn't actually my first, uh, my first love. My father was a big, passionate tennis player, and uh, he introduced me to tennis at a very young age. And, uh, but the times when we grew up, uh, you know, we played in the street, and uh, all sport was around us. It was a community-based uh, sporting environment. So uh, even though we had very little, at, we had nothing actually at school level, uh, we were all linked to clubs and clubs were sports clubs. Uh, so uh, we were drawn to whatever sport was in the family. And fortunately, in my case, my dad was uh, a very keen cricketer. He played uh, in the old ethnic setup uh, for the Eastern Province Indian Cricket Union. Uh, he was a lover of tennis and introduced me to tennis, as I said. So tennis and cricket became my, my two uh, primary sports. Uh, I was also blessed to, you know, love all sports. I played a lot of soccer in my youth uh, and took to whatever sport came my way. Uh, so that was the environment with which I was fortunate to be brought up with or in. And uh, after tennis, when did you start playing cricket, let's say on a more serious level? It's interesting. I was actually playing tennis one day out at, in Port Elizabeth. Uh, you know, we had the, you do remember, we, we're talking about times when we had whites and non-whites. So uh, even though the term is not uh, regularly used and frowned upon, but I attended school with, uh, with my uh, friends who were from the areas. Uh, so uh, we were playing tennis and uh, I got a call from the adjacent cricket field from the club that I belonged to. It was called the Aryan Sports Club. And they said there was a cricket match uh, alongside and they were short of players. And uh, wouldn't I come and play, uh, you know, join them and come and play. So uh, from my knowledge of tennis ball cricket in the streets, I was thrown into the deep end, uh, suddenly into a big men's league uh, cricket match. So and that was probably at the age of about 12 or 13 when I got involved with. And then uh, from there, uh, it just took off and uh, I played provincial tennis. I played uh, tennis at, at the highest level. And then uh, during our times, there wasn't any incentive for playing sport at, at, you know, at various levels. There was no money in the game. We played for the love of sport. Uh, I then sort of lost interest in tennis and focused more on cricket. And uh, by 1968, I got my uh, Eastern Province Provincial uh, Cricket uh, Colors. We played in what they call the Dadabai tournament. Uh, there were mass tournaments held every two years until 1970. I played in the 1971, yeah, which was in Kimberley, and that brought an end to, to that type of uh, uh, cricket tournaments you know, among our communities. 
Uh, cricket then started to merge within the ethnic groups. And uh, by 1971-72, we started to play the South African Cricket Board of Control. We played the Hawa Bowl tournaments. And yes, yeah, so uh, that's how my cricket uh, got started. And uh, thereafter, it was very much cricket and, and, and very little else. And, you know, you have spoken about playing cricket in the white and non-white era when there was this division of, of sport, you know, of people. Um, uh, what were your experiences during that period, the, some of the difficulties that you faced as clubs, non-white clubs, essentially, playing cricket? Well, I think the, you know, the, 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 the chief difficulty would be the, the level at which uh, the facilities were. Uh, we were not blessed with the best facilities, and that's putting it very mildly. <laughs> uh, so we played uh, out in uh, in fields that were, by today's standards, totally unfit to play. Uh, you know, until you got to provincial level, where the the outfields were fairly decent. We played to a large extent right up till the early seventies. We were playing on on matting wicket, uh, so the pitches were matting and not what we know as as turf pitches. Uh, the the links with the white clubs came very much later. By 1975, 76, uh, there were the first attempts to to merge and to what they called normalised cricket. Uh, there was an attempt. I didn't stay too long on that side because I was very much involved in my other sport, and I I felt that I would be isolated. And I also saw that it wasn't what it, it should have been, and and the country wasn't ready for for that. Uh, so my my journey onto the so-called white cricket was a very short-lived one. It was a season. And then I came back to play what we called non-racial cricket uh, and uh, continued there until my retirement in 1984. And uh, can you please explain mm -hmm. uh, the non-racial cricket side of things, uh, how it was set up? Well, if you go back to South African, you know, the history of our cricket, uh, even in the, what before when I use the term, the non-white divisions, uh, we initially had all ethnic groups playing amongst themselves. So you had tournaments for the South African Indians, you had tournaments for the South African Colors, you had tournaments for the South African Malays, and you had tournaments for the South African uh, Blacks, uh, you know, unions. And so it took them a long time to, to realize that, listen, this, this is really not on. And thankfully, we had some great administrators who brought unity amongst our own people uh, to create, uh, you know, a non-racial uh, South African cricket, you know, union. Uh, and we then played for the South African Cricket Board of Control, which then became the South African Cricket Board. And that excluded the whites, naturally, who were still very much happily playing on their own uh, with the best facilities at stadiums like Newlands and St. George's Park, where we were playing on our own field. You know, out in Port Elizabeth, we have the Adcock Stadium, we had the Galvindale Stadium in Cape Town, you had the William Herbert, you had Rosmead. If you go to Durban, you had Curry's Fountain, uh, etc. So uh, we were un unifying our own cricket. And from the early 60s already, we had mass tournaments, as I said. So all provinces would get uh, to a city and they'd play over two weeks. And then by the early 70s, that came to an end. And we started to play, uh, you know, home and away matches 
for the South African Cricket Board. And, and we then, they then introduced the Hover Bowl. And uh, we were then progressing in that, in that sense. Uh, and still struggling naturally without sponsorship, how the administrators got to actually get us to these venues and how they got these matches. Full credit to them. Uh, the sacrifices made must have been huge uh, to allow us to play what we love. Because all of us at that stage, we were playing because of the passion for the game. Uh, there was nothing in it for us except to play for the badge, to play for the cap and to play for the tie. And for that, you, you know, you'd give your all. You know, you, you mentioned the, the badge. And um, back then, the, the whites, the teams set up by the white side of, of South Africa, they played for the, they could go up until they paid for the played for the national bench. And what was the highest level that someone playing non-racial cricket would reach? Yeah, that was probably the, if I look back, that's probably the saddest, uh, you know, part of, uh, of my career that I could never tell and can never tell my kids or grandkids that I attained South African colors because the South African Cricket Board uh, did not offer colors uh, at that stage. The highest level you got to was that during the season, they'd watch all the players, you know, playing in their provincial matches. And for the end of the season, they'd select two teams and they'd call it the North team, which was made up of Transvaal, Natal, and Griqual and West. And, we'd, and they'd play against the South team, which was Eastern Province, Western Province, Southwestern districts border. So they select from those provinces two teams. So if you made that team, all right, they called it the North versus South. If you made that team, you regarded yourself as being amongst the top players in the country. So that's the highest level at which we played uh, cricket at that particular stage. Very much later, I think uh, probably in the late 80s, uh, nearing early 90s, uh, the South African Cricket Board of Control did finally give out colours to, to their players. Unlike the South African Rugby, for example, uh, the non-racial South African Rugby Union, what we call SARU, they gave their players green blazers and they gave them colours, you know, for their highest uh, matches that they played in. So Cricket South Africa, or well, not Cricket South Africa, South African Cricket Board at that stage uh, did not offer colours. So we were content to make the North versus South Team because we then realized or felt comfortable with that. We were looked at, we were being watched, and we were regarded as good enough to make that particular team. And that became a very competitive match. You could imagine the best of Eastern Province, Western Province, and the South, you know, playing against the powerful teams of Natal and, uh, and Transvaal and, and, and the Griqualand West area. And before your retirement, uh, what is possibly one of probably the most memorable match that you played in cricket? Well, I've, you know, I've had a lot of highlights in, in my career because I regarded every match as a privilege and a pleasure and I love and I love playing. Uh, my very first tournament in, in Cape Town, uh, you know, there's an article on it where I was making my debut and we were playing against a very powerful Transvaal team. Uh, and And we were down to the ninth wicket and uh, I was batting at number eight and uh, the ninth batsman at the end of the final 
tenth guy came in, and I think we were about six runs short when uh, he went for the big hit, and he got caught, uh, you know, almost uh, by a mac- miraculous catch. And uh, the article said that I was on the non-strikers then, and I was all in tears. So that's <laughs> probably showed the passion of wanting to win, win a game out, you know, early. And then I think the highlight, looking back, would be that if you look at the uh, records of South African Cricket Board, uh, that only seven of us during that period were fortunate to uh, reach a thousand runs and a hundred wickets, and I, I I was one of the seven. So I, I'm in good company there. Uh, for 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 achieving that, and at one particular season, I think I had the lowest, uh, e- the best uh, polling e- econ- economic rate, uh, which was the best of the entire period of which South African Cricket Board existed. So my highlights would be making that South team regularly, and then the camaraderie that existed between our players up to today. I am still friends and keep in touch with players like Hussein Ayub up in Transvaal. Mustafa Khan, you know, down in uh, in, in Natal, Vinny Barnes in, in the Western Province area, just to name a few players. Uh, so uh, so I think the camaraderie we enjoyed at that stage because we looked forward to those matches. Uh, that was, you know, what we wanted to do. We wanted to meet those players, play against them and enjoy the sport. So whether, and that kept communities together at local level, you know, playing amongst your own people at that stage People knew what they were going to do on a Saturday. They knew what they were going to do on a Sunday. If it's cricket season, soccer season, rugby season, hockey season, they would be out there playing sport. And I'm not so sure if that's happening at the moment. Yeah, maybe. Uh, not even not even coming to COVID. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, people are too busy on their on their phones and laptops. <laughs> Be. Yeah, no, and also the other the, the other factor is that uh, the streets have been taken away from us, Chris. You know, we were we were we could open our front door and walk out into the street with a ball and a bat in hand, and we could play. Uh, and 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 sadly, if you walk around cities, if you go into the streets, uh, how many times would we be able to see children playing in the streets uh, these days? It's uh, you know the streets have been taken away from us, and we've got to get to the point where we can get those. Uh, get our children back into the street so they can enjoy playing and having healthy outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. And then that led to a healthy clubs, clubs that were well administered. And those administrators then administered national level at national level. And so we'd, you'd have a strong club structure, a strong provincial structure, you know, and, and I think clubs are suffering at the moment uh, more than any, any other level of sport. True. And um, you mentioned that you had the best economy rate of the period where, when the South African Cricket Board of Control was in operation. Um, what was your kind of bowling? Was it seam? Was it spin? Was it... Uh, no, I'm a left-arm spinner. I was a left-arm spin bowler, orthodox left-arm spin bowler who bowled from the front of my hands, using the fingers, obviously. Uh, but I think if I needed to describe my own bowling, it would be uh, using as much uh, variety in my deliveries uh, you know, as possible, uh, having the odd uh, arm ball, having the ball that came in from, you know, from the off stump uh, into, the, into the batsman, as a surprise uh, weapon. And then using your guile as a spinner, I think uh, 
I read, I used to read a lot about the Indian spinners at that time, the West Indian spinners, and they would say that uh, to refine the art of spin bowling requires a mature mind. And therefore, the older you became as a spinner, the more you would be able to refine that particular art. And I think that's important, that uh, sometimes we discard players far too young in their careers, particularly in cricket, because you learn, you know, your trade. Uh, as you go along and the more you play and the more you bowl and that's why that particular phase we went through in South African cricket uh, where the emphasis was on fast bowling I always felt for the spinners because I knew as a spinner you've got to allow the spinner to bowl the more he bowls the more he has confidence in his ability the more he can try otherwise if you're going to give him a few overs he's going to just do the basics because he's too afraid to, uh, to try anything else so long spells will be what a spinner requires. And, and uh, the spinners have now, as you know, I mean, who thought that spinners would play such a big role in, you know, in the limited overs games, right down to T20 cricket. If you take Shamsi, for example, uh, you know, in South African cricket at the moment, he's, he's your best example, Kesha Maraj. Uh, all those are players who are spin bowlers who are now looked upon, uh, you know, by franchises uh, to be a part of their limited overs teams. And, and to me, that's that's very exciting. And uh, was it always like this that spinners were always looked at as an afterthought, or during the time you played, did they play a more integral role and they were much more recognized? Oh, so uh, no, no. In our time, I think we played a very a very big part in in, in the game. Captains had confidence in their spinners. And I think that's another key factor. If a captain has, a con has confidence in his spinner, he's going to be using his spinner. I opened the bowling, you know, at, at club cricket, which came very much later at international level, uh, because I felt that it, it was so logical that most opening batsmen will be comfortable facing fast bowlers, because that's what they do all the time, from the time that they're in the nets and from the time they get to a match. So make them uncomfortable. What do you do? You change the pace. You bring in something different. Bring in a left armor, you know. And, and, and I must say that the, the captains I played under uh, at club and provincial level had a lot of confidence in using spinners. And at South African cricket, it's reflected by, if you look at South African cricket board of control in every province, we had the Lefty Adams, we had the Babu Ibrahims, you know, we had the Mustafa Khans, we had the Gopal Manikums, we had spinners who dominated South African cricket because they were allowed to and they were given those opportunities. And um, you retired in 1984 from playing. Um, what did you go into? Provincially. After? I, I retired provincially. I was still playing club cricket. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I still played club cricket uh, way beyond my... Uh, I think I was uh, older than 45, 46. I was still playing Premier League cricket. And I could probably still have gone on, uh, you know. But uh, thereafter, when things normalized in South African cricket, uh, you know, after the early 90s, uh, I, I felt I should come back to cricket. I linked up with the uh, university down in Port Elizabeth, which was then the University of Port Elizabeth, uh, and now the Nelson Mandela University, of which I'm the president of the cricket section at the moment. Uh, I completed a level three coaching uh, course for my own benefit. Uh, just to make sure that I'm, you know, okay with what's expected of cricketers. 
Uh, I then started to get involved administratively down in, 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 in my province, became a convener of selectors uh, for Eastern Province Cricket, became a convener of selectors for the South African Universities, where I selected the university's team for 10 years, uh, and five of which I was the convener. Uh, by 2000, I got uh, asked by Cricket South African to uh, by Cricket South Africa to then uh, be the liaison officer for the touring New Zealand team. That was probably the start of my so-called comeback into cricket. At the same in the same year, uh, Mnet Supersport uh, asked me to join their commentary panel. Uh, so I joined uh, Mnet Supersport uh, in in two thousand, and uh, for five years I was on their uh, cricket commentary panel, mostly on the Afrikaans uh, channel. And by 2006, I felt I needed a change. I applied for the South African match referees position. By then, match refereeing had become, uh, you know, uh, important role in world cricket. And I got appointed in 2006, and I'm still on the panel, uh, uh, heading out uh, probably to my final year or two uh, with Cricket South Africa. And in the interim, of course, I had a stint with uh, the IPL you know, that tournament, and also the Caribbean Premier League, and uh, worked for the International Cricket Council for 10 years. And um, how difficult is it to be a match referee? I, I mean, while you are on the job, I suppose there has to be a lot that you have to look at, a lot that you have to take into consideration while the match is happening. How tough is that job? I suppose it's like going to school, you know, you get good days <laughs> when your class is well behaved <laughs> and you get days when you get days when all hell breaks loose. So uh, it really, it, it really fluctuates uh, from, from match to match, from intensity to intensity. Uh, is there's more at stake? Uh, coaches become irritable. Uh, captains get edgy. Players, uh, you know, start to do things that they're not supposed to do. And you as the match referee, you're sitting back comfortably in your enclosure, but you've got to be watching everything that happens. And naturally, your first point of, con uh, you know, uh, of contact will be your umpires because they're out there. Uh, so they are your first uh, port of call. Uh, they'll be reporting to you about what happens out there. So if there are reports to be made, it comes via them. It is easier if it's a television game, if it's covered by television, because then you've got your third umpire sitting next to you and everything is visible. So if any incident happens, you've got it immediately in front of you. So when it does come to a hearing or if it does come to a reported incident, uh, if a code of conduct has been breached, uh, then uh, you have the footage which you can refer to. So yes, it has its uh, days when it's really, really uh, tough. Uh, the tight calls have to be made. Uh, coaches come storming into your room and you've got to calm them down. And, uh, you know, captains want to talk to you after the game about certain decisions. And so you've got a balance between uh, you are looking after your umpires, you are protecting your umpires, but you're also keeping the ethos of the game. You're also making sure that the spirit of the game is always kept alive. And that, to me, is the strongest point and the the, the, the most significant role is that at all times, you know, you maintain that decorum, you maintain the standards that cricket expects of the game. Uh, so, yes, uh, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic uh, position to be in uh, and a very privileged one. And uh, if, I, if I can ask, 
what's probably what has been probably your most difficult match the one that you can remember where you had to officiate <laughs> no, i don't think i'd be able to uh uh, to uh, you know, pinpoint a game. I do know a game in the CPL where uh, it started. Some matches start very late there because they they coordinated with with viewing time in India and Pakistan, etc. And uh, it's a late start, and then you have rain interruptions. Uh, but to cut a long story short, the the, the final over started at three a.m. and that probably goes down in record as the latest uh, cricket match has ever, you know, ended. And I've got a lovely picture of my third umpire sitting in front of his television monitor and faking that he was fast asleep, you know, because uh, that's difficult. It's also difficult when you've got to go to a captain uh, in, a, in a CPL or an IPL and you've got to find them uh, a huge sum of money because they are slow with their overrates. And all that is linked to the television time because television time is time that you could use to make money uh, by having adverts, etc. So when you're running over time, uh, everybody becomes very edgy. And captains, when they are told that they are behind, uh, are very reluctant because the, you know, the, the fines are quite hefty. And um, what about the most memorable, probably the best one, if you can remember that? Again, there are so many, you know, the, the, Caribbean Premier, the Caribbean Premier League has its own charm. Their spectators, as you know, in the West Indies, you know, there are steel drums all over, dancing girls, etc. Compare that to the IPL in India, huge crowds, uh, also passionate. And uh, maybe the game in, in Eden Gardens where you've got 80,000 people and another 20 outside trying to get in, you know, where you've got Mumbai Indians playing Calcutta Knight Riders, uh, where you've got a Sachin Tendulkar who's playing on the one side and the Shahrukh Khan who owns the franchise on the other side. Those are uh, virtually the two gods of India from the Bollywood uh, section and from the cricket section. And so just to be in the presence of that would probably be for my, uh, you know, when you're out there with the toss and, and you try to hear the, the captains even calling uh, becomes an effort and to me that uh, would be a highlight uh, similarly a situation in the in the Caribbean where you've got a uh, you know a, a, maybe a, a, a Chris Gale smashing it all over uh, uh, the park and everybody in Jamaica going crazy you know or Pollard at his best Bravo uh, those are the highlights uh, that you you don't pinpoint to a particular game but uh, just the overall awe with which you you find yourself in to be witnessing that type of and then to see South Africans come along and make their mark uh, in tournaments like that and the camaraderie to me of what has been done by those tournaments is that when they get to the dressing rooms there's no country uh, that they just mix as a team and that has done so much for cricket because they've learned to understand people from different cultures from different races from different countries and you'll find that to me the biggest plus from those t20s around the world started by the ipl you know carried on around the world now has been that factor that people have learned to appreciate each other more and you know you have been at the biggest and probably most amazing stadiums and you have also 
uh, officiated in, I think, is it Rwanda? Uh, you know, a country that no one really thinks of as a cricket playing nation, but, you know, they are there, they are trying. How has your experience been in, in such small countries, cricket-wise, you know, officiating in their matches and tournaments? I was going to come to that. I would say, irrespective of all the IPL and the CPL hype, my biggest passion and my the most heartwarming part of my my position was going through Africa, not only Africa. I mean, you know, you go beyond Africa. Try to go to Nepal, go to the to the ground in Kathmandu, where there's not one seat where they can sit on. They're all sitting on grass, 18,000 of them. And you see the passion with which the game is being played. Go to America, where people say, oh, they play cricket. More cricket is being played in America than probably any other part of the world at the moment. And I've been to, to, to Fort Lauderdale for a tournament. I've been to Los Angeles to do a tournament. The growth of cricket outside in other countries. I've been to Jersey with the European countries. You know, Italy, Germany, all those people are playing cricket. Coming back to Africa and Rwanda, Kigali has probably a, a, a facility which to me is the best in Africa at the moment. They've just created out in the rural areas of Kigali a magnificent stadium with a beautiful, simple little, it's not a stadium, it's just an area from which the players can operate and the match officials and it's in the shape of a bouncing ball. They've created the structure. And if you Google it, Kigali, the Kahanga Stadium, and look it up, get your listeners to just go and see how beautifully it has been done. And, and that's the country where you'll find that they're going to be hosting more African tournaments. Go to uh, Kampala in, in, you know, in Uganda. The other aspect that's very encouraging is the growth of women's cricket in Africa. You sit next to those ladies, they talk cricket with knowledge. They talk cricket with passion because their love for the sport has grown immeasurably. So there are teams in Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, Namibia. Uh, I went up to Nigeria. They're all playing cricket. And what we need to do as an Africa and as a continent is to encourage those countries. We should be seeing those countries come to South Africa far more than what we do at the moment. Those ladies should be invited to come and enjoy our facilities, to come and play here, so that they can go back and cascade the growth of the game. This is what we need to do. You know, you have just touched on a subject that I think I would like to circle back with to your playing days. You know, you have spoken about ladies playing cricket and how their knowledge is so grown and developed and their passion is so intense. Uh, during your playing days, how was it like? Were the ladies also playing? Were they also involved? Uh, I'm not sure if you can hear me. I've been losing you there. But in, in, the, in the days that we were playing, uh, I had no... We, there were no ladies playing cricket at all on a formal basis. Uh, there, were, there was no uh, ladies cricket uh, in the non-racial leagues. And uh, the growth of ladies cricket uh, has been immense. Uh, and, uh, and it's a very pleasing aspect. Uh, but sadly, uh, during the days when we played, there was no, no ladies cricket, Chris. Mm. Oh, 
so yeah i i can probably understand you know because what about on the other side the, the white side of things if we can call it that yes no I, they, they definitely played they they you know around the world uh, women have been playing cricket for a very very long time uh, and if you look at Andre Woodendahl's book on, uh, you know, the story on a, of an African game, uh, there are sections devoted to uh, to women's cricket. Uh, but uh, you wouldn't find that uh, any of the uh, so-called uh, black uh, unions uh, feature anywhere there. No, that 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 never existed. And for uh, what reason, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because uh, there was. Not much information, which it brings was, me to the next question. You maybe know. it was just, yeah, maybe it was just regarded as a man's game, you know, the gentleman's game. <laughs> Precisely. And which brings me to this point that, you know, you are involved with the Port Elizabeth sporting heroes. I'm forgetting the proper name, but you are honoring the sporting heroes of that period the period when there was division and some uh, athletes, not just cricketers, who never got a chance to be celebrated either by the nation or their own communities. Uh, can you share where this passion comes from? Sorry, Chris, I'm losing you there. No. Uh, you're referring to the Port Elizabeth Sports, Sports Legends Trust, the PSLT. Yes, yes we uh, we uh, about five years ago, we, uh, you know, got together, six of us, and uh, we felt that so many sports persons uh, in our communities uh, never received the recognition or the acknowledgement uh, that they were due. And we looked across the codes uh, because when you are involved with community sport. Uh, as seasons come, you support all the codes. So if you lived in the so-called colored community, I schooled with, you know, in that particular community, we played our sport together. Uh, you'd find that all the codes that they played, or we played at that time, became very popular. And so you had your top hockey players, ladies, men, uh, top uh, softball, baseball players, even if it was darts, you know, snooker, billiards, soccer, rugby. We then looked back at ourselves and said, so many of those names were so familiar to us and we regarded them so highly because they were our heroes. And uh, they were passing away and nobody's actually done anything about acknowledging them. So this is how we came about uh, using that as the basis for our functions we held and every year for the past five years, we've been selecting 15 particular sports persons and acknowledging their, their role. And finally, we put it down in a book form where we've got 45 so-called legends. We've told their stories so that people can read about who these people were in the communities who were entertaining them on a Saturday and a Sunday, either on the soccer fields or during the cricket season, uh, you know, providing leadership uh, they were also administrators that we acknowledge because they gave sports persons opportunities by creating uh, a good foundation for people to play sport. Um, if I may ask this question, you know, you are still a match official, you still follow cricket. 
but what is your motivation as you do all these things, as you take care of things that the Sport Legends Trust, the Port Elizabeth Sport Legends Trust, as you do your officiating, what is your motivation? Now my motivation is a, is a simple one. My motivation is that sport should remain uh, a, a, a major part of your, of your life, that during your lifetime that you should be out there, uh, irrespective of what code you decide you want to follow. Today, we all celebrating our first Tokyo gold, you know, in the swimming pool. And uh, you would want to say, uh, you know, in all our townships, what are the swimming pool conditions like at the moment? Are there swimming pools? How many children are we giving an opportunity to so that they could think about 15 years from now or, you know, 12 years from now at the, at an Olympic Games where they could be there, you know, swimming for, for your country. To play for your country is what every child should aspire to. Not everyone would succeed in doing that, but the mere fact that you enjoy the journey, the destination will take care of itself. It is being involved in that journey that's to me the most important but create the facility and maintain the facility unless our communities look after what we have we are fighting along a, a, a very lost cause sadly and you know um as you are speaking of this you know i'm thinking you would know better because you played cricket when there were no facilities you know the importance of having the right facilities it's you know you made it to provincial level without the the right facilities oh. absolutely unless you unless you create the facilities unless you establish facilities unless you teach communities around you that these facilities are for your own children that these facilities are to be maintained it's probably easy for a company to put up a tennis court, to put up a cricket net. It's more difficult to look after that particular facility. And I think once we take ownership, clubs must take ownership and be given the opportunity to run facilities, to be proud of their facilities, to establish clubhouses so that the families can come there on the weekend. The women can make tea on a Saturday afternoon, provide the cakes, the young ladies who are playing can play sport. Uh, and, and this is what we need. We need a healthier environment. We don't have an healthy environment. We are only looking at the professional sports persons. We've got to start at, at ground level and create this atmosphere where a child wants to say, I want to be out there. I want to go and play. The key, the key word is I want to go and play. I'm not saying play what. Just go out there and start playing. Tennis racket in hand, golf club, you know, swim, soccer, cricket, just play. And from there, you're going to get, and schools have an important role to play. Teachers have an important role to play because they have these children for so many hours under their care. And if you've got the facilities in your school area, naturally those facilities are going to be used. But schools have not developed to that point. We merely able to provide a book for our children at the moment. So where are we going to look at? And 
Uh, when you are officiating in matches, what is your philosophy? The 